You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. In this series, we're discussing landscape and ecology and thinking about how what we build relates to the natural world around us. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. That's the importance of spatial planning and proper spatial planning. It's not a blob on a map and you're just saying that's where 3,000 homes have to go. You have to think of things as layers and you have to plan for things as layers from nature to water to the energy supply to how you plant your gardens, where you put gardens. You need to think of everything holistically and in a spatial neighborhood way not just plonk the houses and then sort of think oh god how are we going to sort out the nature today george and i are in conversation with two members of the velo city team jennifer ross founding director of Tybalt's Planning and Urban Design Consultancy, and architect Sarah Featherstone of Featherstone Young about their ongoing work to rethink the Oxford-Cambridge corridor. Velo City proposes a network of cycleways and footpaths combined with access to local rail stations to reduce dependency on cars, as well as new housing and mixed uses in existing village centers. Velo City is a design proposition for the English countryside that speaks directly to the challenges raised in our last episode with rewilding expert Isabella Tree. How to protect precious environmental corridors while simultaneously providing much needed affordable housing. Jennifer and Sarah describe their current work with the Blenheim Estate in Oxfordshire, where they are upgrading footpaths and bridleways to facilitate pedestrian and cycle connections between existing villages and support a mix of activities in adjacent villages. They also explain why holistic spatial planning is the way forward, why new housing carefully located within existing villages is preferable to village extensions, and how barns can be repurposed as community hubs for activities such as package delivery and collection, shared bicycles, and car clubs. Sarah and Jennifer, it's great to have you here today to talk to us about Velo City. You started Velo City back in 2017, well ahead of the pandemic, through a competition win for the National Infrastructure Commission. The pandemic has made a lot of people reconsider how they want to live, and the ideas you're exploring offer a new way of living in the countryside. In this series, we've been looking at how landscape and the ecological crisis inform the design process, and we're particularly keen to drill down on the planning implications, which have been very much in the news recently, including a Guardian article headlined, Housing Plans in Sussex Turn NIMBY Against NIMBY. One 
upside of the international travel restrictions is that I've had a chance to explore parts of the UK that I haven't visited in the 30 years I've been here. Recently, Yorkshire and also southern Cornwall. And everywhere there are housing extensions tacked onto the outskirts of existing villages, and they all look the same. Architects don't often get to choose the sites they work on, and this means that the environmental impacts associated with transport often get ignored in lieu of operational or upfront impacts of buildings. In Velo City, you have a much more joined-up approach, considering transport ways to reinforce existing communities and where it makes sense to build new. In episode two of the podcast, Annalie Ritchie's introduced us to Velo City. Could you give our listeners a quick recap of what the concept is and how it came about? Contrary to the name, Velo City isn't about cities. It's about the countryside. And as you quite rightly say, the rural issues connected with that. And so, yes, I suppose our vision is quite radical and it's about how we can provide new homes in the countryside with better connectivity and being less reliant on the car. So it's a big question and I think that we've seen recently in the article you mentioned, it's about where and what type of housing we should be building in the countryside. And when we all came together on this National Infrastructure Commission, we were very interested in not looking at new towns, not looking at town expansion, but actually looking at villages because they are already places that exist and have a really strong sense of place, but they have got problems of isolation, car dependency, ageing population, etc. So we felt that if we could introduce a fine-grained network of walking and cycling that connected a cluster of villages, so we're not just looking at one, we're looking at a series then we can link them and they can begin to grow and support all the community facilities they've lost, the shop, the post office, the bus service. And so over time, they can cycle and walk and have everything they need on an everyday basis within a smaller radius. But we were always looking at that sitting alongside the faster mode of travel that we need, the links to public transport, to fast train and bus services. So we were only we were always looking at villages that were, say, no more than five, seven miles away from a town or a train station so that you had the ability to travel further afield and make those connections. And so, yeah, we started talking about this reimagined village, this village which sees much more light footed housing being built within the historic core of the village, not spreading out along roads so that you keep the distinct character of the village. You keep that village compact and walkable. And that light-footed, higher-density housing can be achieved by giving less space to cars. Because, again, we see a lot of housing right now which still sees almost 40% of its land in a development given over to car parking, drives, roads. And we also sort of have done studies on what appearance and aesthetic the housing typologies and new workspaces might take. So it's not just the picturesque terrace workers' cottages that we might be taking cues from. It's also those large agricultural sheds. And they also, we see them being perhaps used to a certain extent on the edges of villages where you have this depot for deliveries to come to. We push cars to the edge. We keep the bigger vehicles and deliveries on the outside. We, we start to see, as I say, over time, these villages evolving and becoming wholly pedestrianised and over time, the cluster of villages being linked by a network of just cycle and walking and our reliance on cars become greatly reduced. So there's an idea that living in a rural area means that you'll be close to nature. But for many people, this just means driving past some nature in the car. 
how does Velo City move beyond this and, and, and really get people to cycle and, and walk and not just drive everywhere? I think that was one of our inspirations, really. We all met cycling. And uh, one of the things I created at Tibbles was this thing called the Padel, which is about getting people of all types and sizes and shapes on bikes. And we all met and spent many thousands of miles going through Europe on a bicycle. And one of the things, and I always remember Sarah saying this, you know, as we cycle, you smell, you see, you hear and you're very, at that slower pace, you're much more in touch with exactly what you say, nature. And, you know, one of the things we've been looking at is, you know, starting that from a very young age. How do we get safe routes for kids going to school? Why do people use their car? And when you actually split down all those journeys, it's the last five mile journeys that everyone actually do. They don't take their car on longer journeys to work necessarily. They take their heart car on holiday. But it's little short journeys to the waitrose, to the school, to the picking up. And actually, if you can get the right planning and the right infrastructure in place, you can start to do all those different journeys on a bicycle. You can walk, you can do all, all those things. And then that's when you get back to nature and you start to make those slower journeys and you become in touch with the natural environment. What would these cycle routes be like? For example, in, in Tower Hamlets, where, Sarah, you've got a studio as well, there's National Cycle Route 1, which sounds like it's some sort of cycling expressway. But really, even the parts which aren't roads are all full of pedestrians and dogs on extendable leads and such like. So in your vision, would there be separate paths for pedestrians? What would the surface be for cycling? How would the connections work? Obviously, there's going to be a hierarchy of different ways and different routes that cyclists, walkers and even horse riders might use. And at the moment, the work we're doing in the Blenheim area, we're carrying out a survey and mapping all the different routes that exist. That's looking at old disused footpaths and bridleways right the way through to tarmac roads and, and A roads, which either have or haven't got cycleways along them and what condition they're in, what the pollution's like, how safe they are and then start putting costs against these to see what you would need to do and who could use them. And we're also looking at, we're working with a number of the villages and the parish councillors representing those villages to determine which are the useful routes, where are the places that people need to get to. And in that particular cluster, there is a very local train station in one of the villages. There is the secondary school in Woodstock. There's some very key journeys, the ones where you want to get to school, the ones where you want to get to work via the station to get into Oxford, because a lot of people work in Oxford. And so there's a process we're going through at the moment to establish what might be the first routes to trial, what do you need to do to improve them, and what form of transportation will people need to take. Jennifer mentioned just now the school bus route, and that's quite an interesting one because COVID gave traction to some of the ideas we've been putting forward with Blenheim. The school bus that took all the children in the area to the secondary school in Woodstock had to reduce its service and couldn't take so many children. And because people were aware of Blenheim partnering with ourselves and this emerging vision that we had publicly shared about how we could create greater connectivity and that some of this greater connectivity would come from opening up the cross Blenheim Park, because Blenheim Park is sort of in the middle of this cluster of villages. They actually approached Blenheim, some of the parents of the school children and the school itself, to see if they could open up a route for the children. They trialled it for two weeks. It was a huge success and it's still running. And so that's given people confidence, I think, that this sort of scheme can work. 
That's really fantastic. Now, I want to come back to the question of the where the new housing goes, because a lot of new housing seems to get shunted to greenfield sites in remote locations because there are fewer people around to complain. In Velo City, new homes are clustered very closely in the center of the villages, as you just explained. So who owns the land you're proposing to develop and how do you develop it? One of the things that we always thought when we did the competition was we need a client to demonstrate how this could happen. And where do you start? Who are the big custodians of land? Well, they are the estates, the sort of people that own holistically, they own villages and big tracts of land. And we thought to trial this, the best thing would be to go to one of these landed estates. I mean, these people, are they don't take short-term views. They take life lifetime views. They take generational views. They consider themselves custodians of land. And so we were introduced to Blenheim as a perfect lab, really, like for our, our approach, because the particular area we're looking at, they own eight or nine of the villages, plus all the landscape around there, all the farmland around there. So that allowed us to perhaps test this particular idea and actually be on the front foot and think holistically about how you plan the future of a very wide area. Well, once you have an exemplar that you can point to. That's it. And, and you know, we have talked to a lot of local authorities and one of the things they say to us is we're never on the front foot in where we decide we'd like to put development we're always in the game of developers coming to us and say, this is my piece of land and of course it's sustainable and that's where you have to do it. And then you go through this hideous local plan process with a bunch of sites and you whittle them down and you eventually get to a not the ideal group of sites. And I wish local authorities could just say, that's where we want to put our development. That's the most sustainable place and that's where we actually want it to be. Rather than this game at the moment, it could be much more proactive and that's what we want to show through our Blenheim work. And it does seem to be getting traction as well. I mean, the work we've done with Blenheim has been presented to the local authority, West Oxfordshire District Council, but also to the county council. I think there is a feeling, especially in those villages and those areas around Oxford, that they've run out of land around towns to build on. So actually this notion of what they might call dispersed development is quite interesting to them. But it, it has to come with investment in green travel. Otherwise, we'll just have housing being built in areas where everybody's completely car dependent. So it has to have this investment on cycling and walking. So what needs to change? Jennifer, you've spent your career in planning. And is it at the policy level? I think it possibly is at the strategic level. And, you know, the likes of the 2050 Oxfordshire plan and uh, Yorkshire are doing it as well. You know, actually thinking about what sort of places we want to live in in the future. How are we going to plan those places? And the local authorities taking a much more front footed approach in terms of doing the work up front and saying, where do we want our development? What is the infrastructure that supports that? What is the, the social, economic and environmental infrastructure needing to support that? And actually building the contribution strategies such that developers as a whole contribute to delivering that infrastructure and the stakeholders that are all involved in that process being involved very upfront, like the environment agencies or the water authorities, landowners. It's not the free market approach to things that we've been used to in the planning system. It's giving local authorities much more power to plan 
people are looking forward to 2050 because these things do take a long time and they do need proper planning. I think increasingly people living in the countryside in these villages do realise that things need to change, do acknowledge that more housing is coming and do actually even see their own parents living in big houses, not able to downsize, being rather isolated, you know, not easy for them to be cared for and looked after. So people are aware that there are issues, people are aware that more housing is coming, but I think it's just it's what's on offer that is the problem and, 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 and that you either support or you don't support the new housing. And there's no conversation about actually the quality of the housing or where it might go. Because you've, you've now um, presented the Vallow City concept to numerous parish councils, local councils, community groups. Uh, how does it go down? I think people see it as a very optimistic vision and they sort of say, oh, but, you know, it's all a bit too difficult and it's quite dreamery and it's quite utopian. And that's very much why we wanted to, again, partner with someone like Blenheim to show it can happen and it can be worked through because it's not something that happens overnight either. It's something that's going to take a long time. We've been lucky enough to get some research funding to help us develop some threads of this proposition. And one of them was trying to look at what does higher density housing, for once, I mean, higher density is not the best word. We've talked about soft density and things like that when, when we're talking about it. What might that look like in a village? One of our best examples we found was actually a historic village called Dent. And it's very picturesque because it's got these lovely cobbled, narrowed roads within the centre of the village. And most of the housing is also a terraced workers' cottages. And some of them are even built as flats. And um, the villagers themselves has a real strong sense of communities. And one of the things the villagers have done there was they created this grass-creaked field on the edge so that they actively take all the cars out of the centre of the village. So there's probably, you know, misconceptions really about what we mean when we talk about what this housing might look like and what it might feel like in, in the middle of these villages. So in terms of the design, you're proposing design codes with flex. So design codes that are sufficiently flexible, that they can be adapted to different village contexts. Could you expand on that? Yeah, so we're recognising that every village is different. And I think that's really important to recognise, you know, they've grown up differently around village greens or there might have been a market or or their topography makes them quite different. And so those are all things that we want to recognise and not lose, but at the same time set some design codes. And we're sort of in the early stages of this set design codes that recognise the historic character of the buildings and the landscape, because the landscape's key, I think. You know, this is about hedgerows and woodlands and retaining those ancient hedgerows and woodlands and and recognising field patterns as well. We started looking at how we would work within that half-hectare traditional size of the fields and then look at rolling out at that capacity in and around the villages. We've looked at foreground housing typologies and background housing typologies, how they sit comfortably in and around that village and how they also begin to address another aspect of our vision which is the uh, big back garden that area of countryside that any one village cluster encircles it's a bit like the green belt but we started thinking about different ways in which villages can address it and start making it more productive but at the same time build on its ecology and biodiversity and also leisure and community and tourism Isabella Tree of NEP, the rewilded estate near Horsham in Sussex, is campaigning against a development of over 3,000 homes adjacent to NEP. 
because it would interrupt a nature recovery corridor. How can you enshrine these ecological corridors in planning policy? And then, you know, at the same time, how do you decide where to put the new housing that's so desperately needed? Yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 the importance of spatial planning and proper spatial planning. It's not a blob on a map and you're just saying that's where 3,000 homes have to go. You have to think of things as layers and you have to plan for things as layers from nature to water to the energy supply to how you plant your gardens, where you put gardens. You need to think of everything holistically and in a spatial neighborhood way not just plonk the houses and then sort of think oh god how are we going to sort out the nature recovery or oh don't worry we've got 10 percent biodiversity net gain that's all right from my side it's being really upfront and planning all of these things in a holistic fashion because they all have relationships it's not just planning for the car or it's not just planning for the housing it's thinking through things in a holistic manner. And I should imagine the 3,000 houses were designated way before that someone occurred to someone it was next to a, a nature corridor. So a lot of villages look more like places to drive through than to stop and walk around. And a lot of shops and services are struggling. And since everyone drives everywhere rather than being out and about, there isn't always much of a sense of community that might hope for. How does Velocity address this? Well, that's the precise concept of it, to build that community. The way that we've always thought about village planning in the past is that you do this sustainability appraisal on village by village by village by village, and you decide that, oh, that village isn't sustainable, so we don't put any development there. We just leave that one alone, and the car passes through to the bigger allocation on the edge of a town. If we actually think about you know, ours are all about six or seven clusters of villages, growing them to between three and 600 units each. Each one supports the shop, the school, the cultural facility. They're not in every village, but they're seen as a cluster of villages round the landscape and the roads slowly come out or get thinner and you park. You don't need to drive, you walk, you cycle. And you're when you want to go out of the village, you go out onto the sort of road network, but you don't, we take out the car within this cluster or, you know, it goes slower. So you start to build that sense of community. They're not a place you just pass through. I mean, it's over time. And if you look at the Blenheim model at the moment, yeah, you shoot through the middle of these villages. But over time, what we're saying is we're talking about blocking off roads. So you have to go out and around the edge so that you have to walk. So it's unpicking lots of the things we've done in the past. So you don't pass through, you actually live and you walk. And just to add to that, I think with the work we're doing with Blenheim and sharing that work with people that are living in the area, there has been a sort of recognition, I think, amongst a number of the people living in these villages that they don't necessarily know much about the next door village. They don't necessarily go to it because they would jump in the car and go to the supermarket or Oxford or something like that or, or Whitney. And so it's great. There's this uh, group of the seven villages around Blenheim now that have set up what they've called the Village Travel Network Group. So it's off the back of some of the work we've been doing. And obviously the central to that is to create safer cycling and walking routes between the villages, but also actually talking to each other and making each other more aware of what's actually going on in each village so that people have a reason to perhaps go more locally rather than further afield. Right. 
Fellow City is all women, and Lee Ritchies has spoken about how the emphasis on separation and privacy in ordinary suburbs can be isolating for women. Are the proposals informed by a feminist critique of how we build? Definitely, we have thought about things from our perspective, and we've thought about it as a group of five, six women talking all the time about what makes a great place and how we would like to live in a place, how what's important to us, what's what are all the things. So it, in a way, it's very multi-layered. We have gone down to the very sort of how do you get your shopping? How do you feel when you walk in these places? How will I feel when I'm cycling? So it has been done from a perspective of really not from a helicopter, but how do you actually live? So whether that's a feminine way of doing it, I don't know, you know, sort of, it's just the way how we want to live. Sarah, perhaps you say it better. I I remember reading a piece back in the, you know, in the paper some time ago about how women's journeys, they will tend to walk or cycle somewhere and do a number of different things along that journey. Whereas a man, I mean, this is probably a huge generalization, tends to want to get from A to B super quick. And it's with one purpose in mind, usually. So I don't know whether that tallies at all with the things we're interested in in Velocity. But I do think that part of this cycling and walking and these routes that we create are to do with slowing down, but also to do with making those routes as useful as possible and having a number of different things that can happen. So you're not just along that journey to take your child to school. You can also pick up the milk or some bread or stop off at the shop. And of course, by slowing down as well, you just begin to then have the opportunity for many more of these informal social moments that can happen where you bump into people and you get to know your neighbour, which of course at the moment you don't because you're jumping into a car and going somewhere else and you never really see each other. Did I understand correctly that you have a 45-unit housing project, passive house project? Is it part of this? There are a number of things we're trying to pilot with Blenheim, and there is a site in one of the villages which was a rural exception site, um, had already been designated for housing. We're looking at maybe 30 to 40 homes that would be 100% affordable. They would be passive house design. And actually, this site is right in the middle of the village, so it's not sprawling out. It would follow all those principles of keeping the village compact and walkable. And it has allotments on the site and it has some scrubland. So it's, again, retaining those, building community orchards. It's trying to be much more light footed, pushing the cars to the edges. And running through that site is an old uh, footpath, rights of way which is perfect because that, again, is a sort of micro version, if you like, of what we're trying to do between villages. So here within the village, we're actually looking to open up that old rights of way and have a cycle walk route through the middle of the housing, which isn't just about the movement within the site. It's actually linking the playing fields back to the village green and the school. So it's a safer route for the school children rather than at the moment. I mean, the road there's a very busy road that, you know, the central road running through the village and its pavements, as, as you so often see in these villages, are sort of disjointed. They start and then they just frizzle away or they just get too narrow or they're just broken up. So there's a lot to do because, you know, the, really these places are not really set up for priority to people. What are some of the other ideas that are in the pipeline at Blenheim? Actually, it's not all about housing, of course. It's recognising that uh, increasingly, of course, with COVID as well, people are working from home. So it's building into this shared workspace as well. So Blenheim have been identifying buildings or, or sites within villages where perhaps they can introduce um, work hubs, shared work hubs. And the uh, housing site we're looking at in the village 
is also going to um, have a small community building which would provide five or six workspaces and you wouldn't be able to drive there it's like the idea is it's workspaces for the people in the village we're not going to provide parking space for it and that's something that they're trying to set up in a number of different villages and of course alongside this also is their whole approach to land management and to changing where they're farming the some of the land and Roy Cox who's their director of land speaks very eloquently about their kind of longer term vision of increasing the woodlands growing more trees decreasing grouse farming and things like that so as Jennifer was saying it's very holistic they have their own energy strategy alongside that to be a sort of carbon positive by I think 2030 so they have a whole strategy alongside that which goes right through from workers' cars being all electric to how they deliver power, how they build their homes. So it's, it's a very ambitious and very holistic strategy that they are moving towards. Sarah, your company's website lists an office in Point Vane in Powys. Uh, I just that's a tea head van, the house cantilevering out over a, a river in a small hamlet in, in rural Wales. Do you live there? Does that inform your understanding of living in the countryside? I grew up in the countryside, Uh (laughs) Uh, so in a very small village. I am a sort of country girl, really. I only came up to London to study architecture. And yes, we have a studio on the same site as the house in Pontvan in Brecon. And we're increasingly looking at ways in which we can get involved more with housing and the very forward-thinking rural policies that Wales have. In fact, there's a project that we're working on at the moment, which is um, Black Mountain College, uh, which is actually creating a new university which will be located in the countryside. And it's a, you know, it's a really interesting concept, perhaps a little bit similar to Dartington in some ways, perhaps a little bit similar to Cats. The idea is this university will be located just outside a village. It was a small town, actually, uh, in the Brecon Beacons. And it taps into some of the principles of Velo City. Another project on your website caught my eye because of the AJ Retrofit campaign, and that's in Wrexham, where you've converted the lower floors of a, of a car park into an art center. The fact that it was kind of an existing building that was retrofitted, do people relate to it in a different way? I think so, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons why we should be retrofitting existing buildings, obviously, from a sort of embodied energy and things like that. But actually, it's also because it's familiar it's a sort of well-known landmark often, these buildings in, in a town or a village or, or, or a place, so they're meaningful to people. And I think TPAUB is also tapping into the usefulness of it. There are some links to me talking about the routes that we're wanting to set up between villages and making those journeys useful. It's something that we also tried to build into TPAUB and this huge car park building, which really f- sits in a whole block within the town. But it also sits between the outer town retail shopping and the historic core in the middle. We've tried to sort of use it as a direct route to try and link these two different parts of the town because the historic core has been suffering somewhat and take people through the building and link them and make it more visible. And at the same time, it's about trying to build flex into the way that that particular building and the space operates. And this whole business plan was sort of they found themselves with a car park, a market and an arts facility all in one building. And they wouldn't normally have those different activities in one space. And although we're talking about the future without cars, 
in the short term, this, this development is still super dependent on the income they get, the revenue they get from that car park. So every time we said, could we take another parking bay for a roof garden or for a little bit more space for the, you know, the education centre that's going to sit up there, they had to look at the figures and see whether they could actually lose the income of the car park that bay to um, the potential income that the arts or the market might be generating. And they are taking over more car parking bays, so it's quite exciting. Because you mentioned um, forward-thinking rural policy in Wales, because in 2015 it passed its Future Generations Act, where the public sector has a duty to consider the long-term impacts, including sustainability. So do you work much in Wales, and do you think that there's a, a different attitude to sustainability compared to England? I definitely do think there is. I think the Future Wellbeing Act has had a huge impact on the way they do things and the way they think about things. All public projects have to meet these 10 criteria. In fact, I've been teaching on a course at the um, Welsh School of Architecture, which wholly focuses on uh, the Future Wellbeing Act and how we need to place more value on the social, you know, the social value rather than the economic value. Wales is often ahead of the curve somewhat, and a lot of these more sustainable initiatives than than England. There's another aspect of this we haven't touched on yet, and that is logistics centers and online shopping delivery. And I love what you said about the car park being repurposed into an art center and a market. And actually on another interview earlier this week for something totally unrelated, someone was telling me about NCP car parks in central London being repurposed for for logistics centers because there's such pressure for this. And you alluded to it briefly, you know, that larger farm buildings or barns could be repurposed and in studying the Oxford-Cambridge corridor for Velo City and Milton Keynes, you must have come across some of this. How do you see this fitting into your proposal? I think logistics were part of it. And, you know, how we saw it was that yes, people are going to have more and more deliveries. And what we had were these repurposed barns bringing that sort of stuff to the edge of the village, but then distributed to the cluster of the villages by an alternative mean. Or you could go to these repurposed barns and you pick up your goods and you perhaps the shop is there and perhaps other things are there and then you take it into your village. So it's stepping stone logistics that we thought about rather than people coming and large lorries driving through and trying to find you. We had the collecting points mm. around the villages. Yeah, we talked about, and I think we've named them interchange hubs. So people keep yeah. asking us, what do you mean by interchange hub? Yeah. So it's all the things that Jennifer's describing, but it's also perhaps a place where we can have the electric car share, the bike share. You can scale down your, your the way in which you're traveling. And, and, and so, yeah, we saw these depots, if you like, sitting on the edges of the village clusters. Well, one last question. I've heard you talk about Velo City in terms of gentle radicalism, laying the groundwork for innovation. So what's next in the pipeline? To be honest, I'd love the Blenheim project to happen in full. And I'd love people to look at it and say, do you know what? That was how we should be doing planning. And, you know, we actually roll out what we say we're going to do. And what has a lot of scepticism and probably fear and probably conflict at the moment becomes something we look back on in another 50 years and say, do you know what, that was a really good idea. We've got to address the climate emergency immediately. And this is a way that it's more achievable than having everybody move into the city so they don't need to drive. It's kind of working with what's there is what's existing, existing communities and infrastructure and 
it's very practical, but also it's a way that you can really see how living in a more sustainable way will make our lives better. We'll have more connection to nature, more community. I really love the idea. I think it's like a new sort of garden city vision for what development in the countryside could be. I really think it's great. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Jennifer. That's a great place to conclude. We'll be following your work at Blenheim as it takes shape in the coming years. After this episode, we are taking a short break for the rest of August. We'll be back speaking to more climate champions in September in the run-up to COP26 in November. You can catch up with other episodes in this Landscape and Biodiversity series and all our previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, Please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.